Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I'm a little unsure how to get going with this one. It feels weird hearing my voice echoing back at me. And I got to say, you guys quiet down a whole lot better than the sixth graders do that I'm used to working with now. Usually I have to shut the lights off and raise my hand and all that. So, um, this, this particular message that I'm bringing to you guys this morning is actually kind of a hard one for me to do. Uh, it's a warning about things that have a way of creeping into churches. And it's something I've been thinking about for the better part of a year and a half. Um, I had a very good friend who... Um, I thought was a very strong Christian woman and her husband too. Um, You know, they were volunteering at church. They were doing all these things. They were having Bible studies in their homes. All of a sudden, I look around and see what they're doing and she's into witchcraft. I mean, literal witchcraft. And I began to wonder how she got there. So this is kind of a product of me thinking about that. And, you know, don't get too nervous or too scared, but I just want to go through a few things. So I entitled it Counterfeit Doctrine. If we go on to the next page, um, this is where I'm going to start with it. It's data, right? It's Gallup poll data. And guess what? We're number one on the wrong end. Vermont, according to the 2017 Gallup poll data, is the least religious state in the nation. We finally beat out New Hampshire, who actually moved up on the list. All six of the New England states made the bottom ten, by the way. And in case you're wondering, Washington tied with New Hampshire and New York is number twelve. So that's the Northeast. Okay. So what does this data mean? And what doesn't this data mean? Well, here's the thing it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Vermonters are not spiritual. That data doesn't tell a complete or full picture. They don't ask enough questions. and There's really no way to. But as I look around, what I find is we're surrounded by spiritual elements all over this state. Some are Christian. About 21% of us that attend church, maybe. But a lot of it is of Eastern religious origins. It's new formulations of old ideas that are coming back in the neo-pagan tradition and, and spiritism. And some of these ideas have a way of making them the, into the church. They, they find their way in. And it's not a lot of people. It's not necessarily endorsed from the pulpits of these churches. But as we read in Scripture, you know, a little bit of leaven will work its way through the whole lump of dough. So it's something we need to pay attention to. Some of these practices involve meditation of an Eastern form. They involve energy work and healing things. There's an unhealthy obsession in a lot of churches with angels. They elevate them to a level that they shouldn't. 
And I might throw in a few other things. People sometimes look into astrology. You get up in the morning and read your horoscope. Some people consult tarot card readers. Others consult psychics. I'm not saying any of us are doing that. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But how does a person go from leading Bible study midweek in their home, attending church every week and volunteering, to indulging in witchcraft overtly? Um, your start is here. So if we move on to the next slide, uh, warnings. There are many letters in the New Testament that warn against false teachers and false doctrines, false prophets. Matthew 24, 24 is the words of Jesus Himself and He's talking about to His disciples about things that are going to come. He says, false Christs and false prophets will arise. They will perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Right? We're the elect. But we need to be on our guard. And I hear the overwhelming silence in here it's sobering first timothy chapter 4 is another warning that i that particularly spoke to me as i was studying this out it says now the spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons and what does that have to do with anything and then I, there's a whole slew of other verses that i've listed there that are warnings to the church and there are more that we could find. I didn't list them all. What we do know is this. God is a supernatural being, right? What Christ did was supernatural. Um, the trouble is there is truth, and then as some people say, there is truth with a small t. I've heard that before from, from teachers. So... Regarding angels, and as some people in these practices would talk about them, the spirit guides, right? At the point in time when I was thinking about the, this obsession with angels and everything, um, I, I came into Sunday school one day, and it was Dave's turn to teach in Sunday school. And once you know, he brought a teaching on the first chapter of Hebrews. Hebrews talks a lot about angels. And as Eric pointed out during that class, it was all about how Christ is better, or Jesus is better. Well, one particular verse that I'm highlighting here, showing that they're servants of God and messengers that have come to aid us, Hebrews 1, verse 14, says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? They're sent by God to help us who are to inherit salvation. The things they're doing, they're doing for God at His will. Okay. The next point I'd like to make is, okay, let's talk about demons a little bit. What, what do we have for demons? Some may disagree with me a little bit here, but there are fallen angels that serve Lucifer or Satan. About a third of the host of heaven, if we read Revelation, right? And if we look specifically at 2 Corinthians 
uh, chapter 11, verses 13 through 15, he talks about men who are false apostles. Starting in verse 13, he says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. They elevate themselves to these positions of power. And they lead people along with them. By contrast, if we read in Revelation verse uh, chapter 19, um, the angel is talking to John. And starting in verse 9 of chapter 19, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Now here's the key thing. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. Now this is John the Apostle. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So though the angels who are not fallen in nature, yeah, they're still perfect and we see our sin and I would be terrified to come in contact with an angel, we shouldn't elevate them to a place they don't deserve to be in. We need to hold these things in their proper perspective. Okay? And they, every time, will not elevate themselves and they will point us to worship God. Okay? So energy work and healing, this is, this is a tough thing. There are a lot of different forms of this kind of healing work and energy work. And on the extreme case, I, I've highlighted magic. This is where my friend ended up. Okay? Spells, rituals, channeling, automatic writing, shamanistic healing. Very deep into the occult and occultic practices. A little bit lower level than that is this idea of energy healing. And there's a whole lot of stuff that falls under that category. Some things we may not all have heard of. I only heard of it because I was doing a lot of research. But this idea of polarity and aura balancing, Reiki healing, touch, crystal healing, some practices of yoga. Yoga is an easy one for people to get sucked into. Because on the surface, it's stretching exercises and breathing exercises, right? What's wrong with stretching and breathing? Nothing. Uh, sometimes we have to find a way to separate the good from the bad and practice the good and throw away the bad. Many of these techniques, as I do the research, they require some sort of an activation ceremony of some kind, a clearing and aligning and opening and unblocking, whatever they call it. Different traditions have different names for it. That's what makes it confusing. 
many of them try to bring in Christians. They make claims that this is the way Jesus healed. And they perform signs and wonders that would deceive the elect. One thing I would point out though is that Eve, if, if we look at Genesis chapter 3, what was the temptation, the final thing that got Eve to try the fruit? The serpent said to her, try it. You will be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. Okay. Lucifer's own downfall, right? Many have equated this passage in, cha- in Isaiah chapter 14 with, with the downfall of Satan. Where chapter 14, verses 13 and 14 say, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make myself like the Most High. It's that same attitude that comes into a lot of this. You do this, you'll be like God. Okay? But Christ... Christ was fully God and fully man, okay? He healed under the power and authority of the Father. Uh, Yeah. So, the next thing I did was I I took a look at this energy with with the question in my mind, where does it all come from? Where do they say it comes from? So, in various traditions of of this kind of work we they call it ki or chi or kundalini prana life force vital force mana they have many names for it they make a claim that it it is like the physical energies that we see that are invisible we can't see them like radio waves or electromagnetism uh, it comes from the universe or the universal consciousness. Some will claim that it comes from the God consciousness. And some will try to apply an explanation that's rooted in a flawed understanding of quantum mechanics. Uh, they do that to avoid the spiritual connection and the spiritual connotation of it. But in the end, even when you read those articles, there's this admission that there is a special metaphysical nerve force energy that has properties similar to electricity. Okay? So, it becomes clear to me as I study through it that these, these proposed sources of this energy are metaphysical in nature. The source is spiritual, not physical. It is claimed by some that this energy has its own intelligence. It's going to go where it thinks it needs to go to do the healing or whatever it needs to do. And clearing the pathways of blockages allows this energy, which is spiritual, to flow. Where is it flowing? It's flowing into us. Or those people who practice it. Okay? And people are told, oh, nothing can go wrong. It's just energy. And it, 
it heals. The trouble is that as I was reading these articles, again, from a practitioner, guess what? There are things that can go wrong. Those things include spiritual attachments, exposure to dark energies, and attachments to the spirits of deceased people. The more I read about it, the more I discovered that um, this was dangerous stuff. It all sounds good at first, but it has a way of pulling you in. Okay. Another practice that makes its way into our lives fairly easily because, again, it's around us. I work in schools now, and uh, I hear a lot about mindfulness. Um, a lot of the practice of mindfulness that I see is related to an Eastern form of meditation. Meditation and mindfulness techniques are ultimately designed to reunite the practitioner with universal divine consciousness. Ultimately, that's the goal, is enlightenment. This quieting and clearing of the mind, it allows one to be opened to things. The question is, what are you opening yourself up to? You've got to ask that question, ultimately. As I looked more into meditation, this, the Eastern practice is one thing. It's a quieting of the mind. It's an emptying of the mind. Often accompanied with repeatedly chanting mantras, moving towards the light, and ultimately realizing enlightenment or oneness with God. On the other side of that, as I looked into the biblical terms for meditation, meditates, meditate, I find an active sort of pondering or contemplation of God and the scriptures. We're warned in the Scriptures to avoid vain repetitions. And ultimately, this is to bring us closer to God. But the Hebrew words that I found that were translated meditate, meditates, and meditation in Scripture, they include words like amar, I'm going to pronounce these horribly wrong, bakar, haga, haguth, hageon, suach, siach, and sika, sika. All of them, as I look them up in my concordance, they, they convey this active sort of contemplation in their definition or a pondering. Not a clearing of the mind, but seeking God. Okay. So the characteristics of these counterfeit doctrines... A lot of them stem from these Eastern philosophies and, and false teachings that are related to Eastern Vedic beliefs that eventually became what we know now as Brahmanism, Hinduism, Zoroastrianism, Buddhism, or Taoism. They have a tendency to be pantheistic in nature. Pantheism is this idea that God is everything and everything is God. There is no separation between Him and His creation. Okay? 
panentheism is a closely related cousin to that, which is the idea that God is in everything and everything is in God. Again, implying no separation. So, because these things are pantheistic in nature, we can look at ourselves in a way, if we're practicing these faiths, as though we are a piece of God ourselves. Some people have heard Shirley MacLaine say, run around saying, I am God, you know. Um, but there's this idea behind it. Achieving enlightenment through these practices reveals this truth to people. It's a false truth. It's a false doctrine. They claim there are many paths to enlightenment. Okay? Their focus tends to be inward towards the self, elevating the self, trying to bring about the ability to live as your highest self. There is this idea that there is no sin keeping us separated from God. Some of these forms of practice are dualistic in nature. The idea that the one universal consciousness has a light and a dark side. But there's no real sin. And the biggest thing about it is that anyone of any faith can practice these things. They'll embrace all faiths. We're all okay. But you've got to ask this question. In the Christian faith, in the Scriptures, as I read the Scriptures, does the Spirit of God dwell in people who deny Christ? So if the Spirit of God does not dwell in people who deny Christ, where does the energy for this practice actually come from? Yeah. So the trouble is, again, as I mentioned, the, the experiences that people have in these, in these practices are real. They're not imagined. Okay? In Ephesians chapter 6, we read this, starting in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We're wrestling against the prince of the power of the air. He's a real person with real power. First John has a lot to say about false teachers. I was going to read a couple of verses from, from there too. In First John chapter 2, um, we read, again, it's a warning. Chapter 2, starting in verse 18. He says, children, it is the last hour as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. 
They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out. That it might become plain that they, are, they all are not of us. You see, from within the church itself come false teachers. That last part wasn't in the Scripture, by the way. That was me. And something really important to know when we're being approached by people with these ideas in 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. John warns us, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. There are essentially two kingdoms out there. There's the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the world. And we need to bear that in mind. Um, one scripture that I want to read uh, is in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. It talks about this idea of pantheism. I, I apologize, I'm going backwards a little bit. Uh, it talks about more than just that, but bear with me a second, please. Um, starting in verse 18 of the first chapter of Romans. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. His creation testifies to His existence. Okay? And this is the point at which we can get confused with this idea that God is everything and everything is God. Okay? So there without excuse, continuing in verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. We need to worship God and not the created things. So on the next, this next part, I went back to the Old Testament, not necessarily to bring law back into it, but to examine the character of God a little bit. What, what kinds of things are right and wrong to God? That's what we can learn from the Old Testament law. 
the two biggest things that I pulled out of this related to this message. Because these things are so closely related with spiritism and witchcraft, in Exodus 20, verses 1-6, through we, we begin looking at the Ten Commandments. God says very plainly, you shall have no other gods before Me. He says a lot more than that in those six verses, but that's for the sake of time, I'm going to skip to the next part. Um, having to do with commandments about spiritism and witchcraft, there are a number of verses that I have posted up there on the slide. I'm going to read in Deuteronomy chapter 18, starting in verse 9. Okay. The Lord is talking to them about moving into the promised land. What He says is, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering. Well, I hope not. Anyone who practices divination, tells fortunes, interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. These practices are not good. Because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess Listen to fortune tellers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Okay. So ultimately, the bottom line here is what matters is what we do with Jesus, the Christ. I put the in there on purpose. He is the Christ, our Messiah. Okay. The counterfeits, these people who bring these teachings forward and try to deceive Christians with them will we'll say certain things to us if we talk to them. And this all goes back to 1 John. Okay, You want to ask what they do with Jesus. They will tell you He was a teacher. He was a good man. He was a prophet. He came to show us a way or a path. He came to show us enlightenment. He brought us enlightenment, but He was misunderstood. And I've even heard some talk about Paul co-opting and distorting his teachings in order to start a new religion and gain power for himself. When you read about how that worked out for Paul, you realize it really didn't work out so well. The reality though here in what do we do with Jesus is this. Jesus said a few things Himself. Okay, In Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, He told His disciples to enter by the narrow gate. Right? Remember, they will tell you that many paths lead to enlightenment. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. A little further down in verse 21, 
he says this, because a lot of people will say, well, I'm doing all of these things to honor God. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In John chapter 14, we read this. Jesus said to him, now I'm, take, you know, I'm skipping part of the story, but there's a whole discussion. And then Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then again, John gives us warning. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, I think I've read this before, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. 4, 1 through 3, I've read that. Right? Whoever denies Jesus came in the flesh is not of God. He who acknowledges Jesus is of God. And then John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So, this, this particular idea, I had a little bit of trouble figuring out where in this presentation to put it. I ended up landing here. I'm not sure it's the right place, but I'm, I'm going back to this angels, spirit guides thing or the Holy Spirit. Okay, many, of, many of the people in these practices make mention of this idea of spirit guides. As I was doing my research, they talk about finding these spirit guides that help to guide the practitioner in their practice and in their life's journey. But what I would tell you is there is just one spirit guide that the Lord sent us. That is the Holy Spirit. It is God who dwells in us and guides us into all truth. In John chapter 16, um, yeah, starting in verse 5 and going through 15. Jesus is again having a conversation with His disciples. He says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to Him who sent me. And none of you ask me where are you going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. 
I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me. For He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore I said, He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. The key thing in there is that He will glorify Jesus. And Jesus glorifies the Father. Any of these other practices have a tendency of glorifying the self and tiptoeing around the reality of who Jesus is. So trying to wrap this all up, what what sort of real alignment do we need? I'm going to read a, a fairly long passage of Scripture and I know it's getting past my time, so forgive me. But I'm going to go back to John chapter 15. And I have 7 through 11 up there. I'd really like to start with verse 1 if that's okay. Um, Starting with verse 1 of chapter 15, he says, Jesus says this I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that bears not, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. There is an implication here that it's possible to be separate from God. We can be cut off. We can be removed. We can wither. It directly contradicts the idea of pantheism. And it tells us where our true power comes from. Continuing with the rest of it, starting in 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So the the final word that I'm going to say on this is, is all these things are counterfeits, and I've talked a lot about them. But the best way to know when something is a counterfeit 
is to know the real thing in a deep and intimate way. And he says this right here, if my words abide in you, we need to spend time with him in prayer and we need to spend time in this book and get his words into us so that when these things come along and people try and talk us into something, we know what's right and we know what to avoid. Uh, Lord, uh, I know I rambled on a lot here. Um, You know, Lord, that this was placed deep in my heart over a long period of time. I pray, Lord, that the words that people were meant to hear would, would sink in, Lord, and anything that was just me talking would be of no effect. I pray, Lord, that You would give us insight and wisdom to avoid wrong and deceptive doctrine. I pray, Lord, that You would help us all to grow closer to You and to abide in You and Your love that we would grow closer to You, Lord, and so glorify You. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.